From the book of Genesis, Then Laban said to Jacob, Tell me, what shall your wages be? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. We're continuing in our series in Genesis this morning, and uh, as we get into the text, it reminded me of, of this uh, moment in PE when I was in elementary school, and I'm not sure why this happened or, or what our, our PE teacher was thinking, but he decided to bring a boomerang in to show us at PE and kind of teach us how to throw one. Have you ever held a real boomerang and seen the heft of that thing? I mean, those things are no joke, Right? And so I think it was kind of just one of those fun days in PE, and so we had all of us kids line up, and we all got a turn at it. And I learned that day, and it's held true, that I am much better at throwing than I am at catching. And it was not, it was not a great situation for me. And, uh, and you know what we see in our story for today, that that is certainly the case with Jacob. Because in Jacob, Jacob right now in our story in Genesis, he has just fled from his brother Esau whom he swindled from, you know, his birthright and his blessing and everything else that he was owed. And uh, he comes into the consequences of his own actions. And so, as we approach our text for today, I also want to, cons- to consider last week. So, we have Jacob, he's flying from Esau, the consequences are following him, and yet, and yet, as we saw last week, he's also brought into this covenant with Abraham this covenant God would bless him, that he would take care of him, that he would be his reward. And so, as we approach our text, we see this great tension of the past life of Jacob meeting the great promises of God and where things get sorted out. And so, I've got three points for us for today as we look at uh, Jacob's, the shadows of Jacob's past meeting God's present goodness. The three points are Jacob's deal, Jacob's lesson, and Jacob's wages. All right, so we have Jacob's deal, Jacob's lesson, and Jacob's wages. Let's look at our text. As we just heard, Jacob had met this beautiful girl, Rachel, at a well, and he had fallen in love. And he said, you know, I'm going to stick around, and I'm going to you know, just kind of see where this goes. And he works for the family for a month. And uh, Rachel's father, Laban, says, hey, you seem to be pretty good at this. Why don't you stick around and, you know, actually formally work for me? And if you do, you know, what would, what would you like to be paid for that work? Now, Laban is a shrewd man, and we see this in our text. He probably already knows what Jacob is going to request. After all, a young person in love is fairly obvious. Would you agree? Not a lot of hiding that, right? But Laban, being shrewd, says, why don't you make the ask? What, do you, what would you like? And so, what Jacob does, he says, you know, he offers seven years of indentured servitude for her hand in marriage. That's a long time by their standards, and here's what I mean, all right? The average shepherd makes about 10 shekels a year, right? The average dowry was 40 shekels. How many years is that for the average shepherd, right? Four. Jacob is not an average shepherd. As we see in our text, he is unbelievably good at what he does. He has the King Midas touch when it comes to sheep and administration. This is like he is good at this. But he goes and he offers more than four. He offers seven, which is unreasonable because, as we find later in the law, six years you're supposed to free an indentured servant. You're supposed to keep them seven. It's against the law. But he says, I'll do the seven for Rachel. And it's worth a fortune to Laban. 
it's a, it's, you know, it's a great deal for Laban. But let me, let me ask you something. When you're negotiating with somebody who's shrewd, do you tell them off the bat how much you want what they have? Is that a good idea? You know, like, have you ever negotiated that? I think the only time I've ever done that's on something like Facebook Marketplace, right? We don't have a barter system much anymore. But have you ever said, like, I would give anything for what you have? Is that a good, is that a good tactic to begin with? Probably not, right? And so we see Jacob kind of making his first mistake here. He comes right out and lets Laban know, catch this, his vulnerability, what he really desires, just how valuable Rachel is to him. And Laban, being a shrewd man, he sets the trap. Listen to what he says in verse 19. He says, and I want you to catch the phrasing on this, Jacob makes this offer and Laban says, well, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, lawyers in the room, let me ask you, did you hear a firm commitment there? Was that an agreement where they shook hands and said, yes, absolutely, it's a done deal? It's not what he said. He said, is that would be better for her to be with you than someone else? It's just enough ambiguity to secure Jacob's service without a formal commitment. And Jacob doesn't read the fine print, which is what? His second mistake. And, and there's a lot of reasons for this, right, for, for making these mistakes. It could have been that he was so blinded for his love, by his love for Rachel that he just wasn't thinking. It could be that he trusted Laban because he was his uncle. That's family. And it could also be, and likely is, that Jacob assumed he was still the most clever person in the room. You know, who could get one over on, on the trickster Jacob, right? Fooled his brother, fooled his dad. Who could fool him? Well, he'd met his match. You know, which, happened, which, by the way, happens to all of us eventually, right? There's over 8 billion people on this planet now, and it's bound to happen that we meet this superlative version of us, the one who humbles us and maybe even teaches us a lesson. I mean, if you're a parent, you don't really meet one. You create your match, don't you? Right? And, I, and I'm learning this, right? So when you're a parent, if you were sneaky, if you were strong-willed, if you were a perfectionist, if you were quick to correct, or if you, you know, charmed to get your way, whatever the case, you'll face that in miniature form, won't you? Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? And at times, you will lose. You know, and I have permission to tell this story, by the way. My wife has, has an amazing memory, which means if you're the, the spouse with the memory, you have the, the advantage in most discussions, don't you? Would you agree? Right? Well, my oldest can quote commitments that were made verbatim from like three years ago and hold you to them. Remember when you promised for my sixth birthday you'd take me to the zoo? You were three. What? Well, time to call you on it, right? And so even my, my incredible wife meets her match in him, right? And then, and then we all get to learn, oh, that's what that's like. That's what it's like. Well, Jacob here has met his match in his uncle Laban. The trickster has met the greater trickster, and he is about to learn a lesson that will humble him, that will teach him something about himself. Which brings us to our second point, Jacob's lesson. After thinking he made a deal, Jacob works his seven years for Laban, and as we saw in the text, they fly by. And so he approaches Laban for Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban plans this week-long wedding feast as his custom, and the community celebrates. And there is a lot of wine, 
Seven years of a, of a wedding is a lot of wine. And in all likelihood, Jacob celebrates a little bit too hard uh, because Laban tricks the trickster. He fools him into taking Rachel's older and, as the text says, less attractive sister Leah. And he consummates his marriage with her instead, right? She's veiled, he's had too much to drink, and it's a dark tent. His third mistake. But with this one, there's no undoing it. The Bible presumes that the bond created in physical union necessitates marriage. There's no taking it back. Two have become one flesh irrevocably. And as you can imagine, Jacob is outraged. As the text says, he cries out, what have you done? But Laban holds all the cards. He's among his people in his land. He's got the wealth. He has the family. And so he responds, well, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, what do you think that's a reference to? The younger being put in a spot before the firstborn. Not in Laban's country, he says. How about yours, Jacob? And suddenly the events of Jacob's past are brought into perfect clarity because it was also not supposed to be done in Jacob's country. But Jacob had taken advantage of his brother Esau's desires and vulnerability to swindle his birthright. And Jacob had taken advantage of the darkness of his father Isaac in losing his sight so that he could swindle the blessing in the dark. And what we see in our text is that it seems that despite how far Jacob has fled from his past and how great the promise of his future may be, he does not seem to be able to avoid the consequences of his actions, does he? And in most cases, right, if you live past the age of six, you know that that rule continues for you and for me. You live long enough, and if you're attentive enough to your circumstances, you notice that most people don't get away with anything. Much like charging some kind of moral credit card, the bill comes due. And it's all sorts of ways, right? Sometimes it's the oppression of guilt. It's these sins that bear on us that have gone unconfessed, right? We see this in crime and punishment, right? Raskolnikov, who's, who's committed the perfect murder. The guilt drives him to confess. Or the narrator of Poe's The Telltale Heart, right? He directs the officers themselves to tear up the floorboards to reveal his crime because the guilt is too much for him to bear. He pays for it. Sometimes we pay for our sins in the transformation of our character, and we become less and like the people we once dreamed of being. And that's a cost. And sometimes it's simply a matter as, you know, the truth will out. And the consequences we face are a direct result of our sins. And, and what we come to find in God is that God does not always preserve us from the lessons we learn through the consequences of our sin, does He? But that's because He is a Father. And that's because He loves us. This is Jacob's lesson. You know, in Laban's deception, Jacob is mercifully confronted with that same sense of loss and betrayal that he had visited on his own brother Esau. Now he knows what that feels like. In Laban, Jacob is mercifully confronted with the worst part of himself, and he gets to learn a lesson from that. And he has a choice 
that follows. It's a choice that we all have. Does Jacob, after seeing this and this devastation, does he continue in the same path with this wide-eyed naivete and foolish pride that got him into this mess, thinking he was the smartest in the room, that he had it all together? Does he flee from the consequences, seeking to escape them, get as far away as possible? Well, the problem with those options, as we all know, is that these things are a cycle, and he would have the same opportunity to learn the same lesson later, wouldn't he? You flee, you get another chance. You don't change your ways, you get another chance to learn the same hard lesson. Or, the third option, does he accept that this is his due? Does he shoulder his responsibility and continue to move forward and hope that the future will somehow be better than the circumstances he finds himself in? Two paths that circle back to the very same moment of decision, one that leads forward to growth. And we see later on in our text that that third path is the one that Jacob chooses. He finishes his marriage ceremony with Leah. He agrees to work another seven years to marry Rachel, and then another six years to accumulate some wealth. Though this time, humbled and with his eyes open, he is not fooled by Laban's trickery. Jacob learned his lesson. He stopped making the same mistakes again and furthering the damage. And you know what? If this was a 20th century Disney movie, we'd say something here about happily ever after, wouldn't we? But the world isn't quite like that, and at least not yet. Which brings us to our third point, Jacob's wages. The idea of wages, in Hebrew, sakar, has been at the center of this story. And given the context, we might read this as Jacob's due, right? His wages are the things that he's constantly grasping after and hoping to receive. His wages are also the punishment of the things that he has done that come back to bite him, his wages. And now, leaving Laban with 20 years of work behind him, he has the dubious honor of being married to sisters that will spark such a serious rivalry between both wives, as obviously it would, right? I mean, think about this. You marry sisters, is there going to be a rivalry? It's not a good idea. And then this rivalry not only is among his wives, right, the sisters, but it also goes down to his kids, and the rivalry gets so bad with his kids that his favorite son, shouldn't do that, had a favorite, his favorite son was what? Chucked into a well and then sold into slavery by his brothers. Do you see the consequences of these things that play themselves out in these rivalries? And at first glance, the lesson we may learn is that we as humans, we can stop making mistakes, but we can't rewrite history, right? No amount of apologies can remove the hurt we have done, and we can't even guarantee that we won't cause hurt in the future. It's a hard lesson. If we've learned anything from Adam and Eve, we can break things, we can stop breaking things, but we can't always fix them to make them good as new, to recreate paradise on our own. But there is one who can. You see, this word that we have been translating as wages, sakar, has another meaning in the Hebrew, and that meaning is reward, as in this great covenant of God, the promise that he made to Jacob's grandfather when God said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your sakar, your reward is very great. 
And while Jacob has been operating on this earthly temporal level, grasping after wages, receiving those he'd rather not, he's also been operating under this great covenant of God that covers all things, that had been passed down from his father to his grandfather and now to him. God as his sakar, God as his reward. God as the one who can make broken things new. And I think that so often we operate on this temporal level, on this temporary level, and we forget the covering promises of blessing in God to make all things new, to make broken things whole. I mean, think about it. Is there any sin that has haunted you that you felt was so great that it could not possibly be redeemed by God, that would be even beyond His ability to cover by His blood and to transform into something that ultimately brought good into the world, if only we were to give it into His hands? That's what we see in our text in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. In Jacob's life, we see this play out as well. That sibling rivalry of Jacob's wives, it led to the creation of the 12 tribes of Israel that was foundational to God's plan for the world. Leah, this poor, this, this poor woman who was discarded by her father. By the way, her name means cow. So you want to talk about Laban being a terrible father? Like, you don't do that. You also don't throw your daughter to somebody who doesn't love her. You know, this, this poor woman. Well, God blesses her and makes her fruitful. And in all of her kids' names, she glorifies God. I have been seen. I have been heard. And finally, with her fourth son, Judah, praise And it's from her line, this poor woman, that Jesus is born, the tribe of Judah. She now gets to be the one, the matriarch of Jesus' line. Her story has been redeemed. And even in Jacob's even in Jacob's grandson Joseph, the one that was or son Joseph that was sold into slavery, the one who was cast aside by his brothers, brought to Egypt and enslaved. Well, he ends up rising to the highest ranks in Egypt, and he saves a whole nation from starvation. And what does Joseph say about his experience? What you, talking to his brothers, you know, tried to work for evil, God worked for what? For good. So I want to encourage us, and I saw this in our… I, I didn't reflect on this earlier, but I just, I just heard it when Father Rodriguez prayed our collect, Right? that we may pass through things temporal and that we would not lose the things eternal, right? We may so pass through things temporal that we finally lose not the things eternal. And there are times in this world, in the temporal sphere, where we will have to pay for our sins, where we may have to harvest the bitter fruit of our misguided labors. But what we see in this redemptive ark and the eternal work of God is that He can use even these seeds to create a paradise beyond our imagining, for we are members of this very covenant. It is God that is our reward, and it is in Him that we have this great hope of redemption. Lewis says that, you know, we as mortals misunderstand. We, we say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will even work backwards to transform our agony into glory. And let us move forward with this eternal perspective of hope, that God is working all things for good. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we call you the great author of all things. That even as we sit to compose our own narratives, you are writing the ultimate story of redemption that you have shown us and revealed to us in your Son who removes our sins from us, who fixes what was broken, who can take of our past mistakes that we would otherwise bury us and transform them into a foundation for good and for your purposes. Lord, I pray that you would keep that hope alive in us, that you would help us to move forward, offering all things into your hands and into your care. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.